So, Connie, you, you said that you didn't necessarily go through Catholic school, right? As as Kurt did. So, Kurt, what what was the difference for you, like, when you're thinking about, you know, you went through all the upbringing through Catholic school, mm -hmm. uh, learning, I guess, more in depth about the, the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what what was that like for you? Was you know, when you took in all the doctrinal information, the, the truths that were coming from the Catholic Church, um, how did you process that growing up? Was oh, it just something? Was it just something like white noise? No, it wasn't necessarily white noise. Um, you know, the the doctrine of the church, or, or like, um, I, I didn't feel like it was anything um, different in an aspect that I was learning these certain things. It was it, it was like checking boxes off to me, um, and and they may have been that not being the best Catholic, but, you know, we, we went to class, we learned, we had religion in, in school, we learned things. And, and I have to say too, uh, let me, let me stop first right here. The Catholic upbringing we had, I think was a, a little bit different per se in some at school where I went to at St. Genevieve because of our principal. We had a very good principal and a, and a principal was very, um, astute at teaching not just the oh you need to do this and this and this and this but she was very good at teaching us uh, how, how Jesus Christ and, and, and faith related to your everyday life so it I have to say that um, that that was a little bit different it wasn't just checking off the boxes as I said earlier but the process of it you know if we if we when we did our first communion, you know, we were excited to do it because it was pumped up in us. And to say that I felt anything different because I did it, I don't know that I did. We were, we were young. Right. So, um, um, and, and I have to say, even though I, I was raised Catholic, my family really didn't, we didn't really go to Catholic, Catholic church all the time. It wasn't anything. And you see, you do see it a lot. We weren't every Sunday mm -hmm. or, or super involved. Uh, I, you know, for whatever reason, Catholic school and what have you was, a, a, and I hate to say that because I never did ask my parents if that was the reason why, but we went to Catholic school so we could learn about the faith and, and maybe the parents didn't have to do so much sure. <laughs> behind the scenes. Sure. You, you understand? And I, and I can't say that is the, definitely the case, yeah. but I, I feel that a lot of that does happen, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's, it, 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 you know, as a Protestant, Mm -hmm. I was, I've never been raised Catholic. Uh, so as, even as a Protestant, when I was growing up, uh, you know, you could have categorized it as checking boxes, mm -hmm. you know, because you, you follow the faith of your parents, Correct. you follow Correct. what your parents are leading you in. And so it definitely could, it's, is very similar, you know, but there's a difference between the faith of your parents and a personal right. faith. Sure. Absolutely. And I think too, some of what he's mentioned makes me think about just what you're saying that Catholicism to me was something that I was because of the family that I was born into. And so that's really important because that's a lot of people in our area. Um, it's predominantly Catholic. And so you're, you're born into that and you kind of just assume that that's what you are. And I think for a long time, maybe that's a good way to describe it. Mm -hmm. I was just Catholic. Like that's what I was. I was 
my family was Catholic. I was baptized as a Catholic, so I was Catholic. And we didn't give, and I think Kirk would agree with this, we didn't give a whole lot of thought to that. No, it was just something you do. And that's problematic, right? Yeah. We realize that now, but we just didn't give a whole lot of thought to it. Well, good morning. Continuing in this series here. And as I've prepared this week and considered some things, I stand here this morning as a man just trembling before the truths of Scripture and by the Word of God. And every time that I have the opportunity to stand here in this capacity to spend the week ahead of time praying, the Lord is always faithful to hit me with the weight of His Word, the weight of who He is and the weight of what He did for us on the cross. And that's what we're doing through this Reformation series is we're looking at what did Christ ultimately do for us. It's been such a great series for me personally, for my family, it's from, for friends and all kinds of different situations. I've had so much opportunity to speak to people and to share the love of Christ. And when we walked into this, Pastor Ben's mentioned that the idea where there would be liberation that would come through this. For many of us here, whether we're our, 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 it's our past, whether it's where we have family now, whatever it may be, that it would bring us to a place of liberation because we can rest in the truths of who God is. You know, interestingly, I liked what Connie had mentioned there about this whole idea that really think a whole lot about it in their upbringing. It was a part of just who they were. It was their family. You just were Catholic, right? And I think many of us would share a very similar sentiment um, in what our lives look like, that if we came from that background. But I think what happens in life, and not only in Catholicism, but in religion in general, if we're not careful, there can kind of tend to be two different categories with which we may fall into. One, we're all in, right? That was the picture we saw with Luther. Unto the point in, in the error of doctrine, he was so all in that he just did stuff that was outside of what the Lord ultimately had for him, right? Just really just grueling his way to try and atone for himself. Then I think there's also some people that are like what I would maybe consider half-cocked. Right? You may just be attending. You could be that here today. This is just what you do. It's a repetition of your life. You show up. Right? It just so happens to be what you did because your family did it. And really, if you began to think about some of the things that you believe, you think, well, I don't actually think I believe that. I may not actually subscribe to that. And actually, I've had many conversations with people up until this point that say just that thing. They've, they didn't realize possibly some of the beliefs that they were connected to. Right? So there's kind of two different places that we potentially could fall. Well, I stand here in a similar situation 22 years ago. The Lord liberated me from the truths of Catholicism. Right? I was a 17, 18-year-old young man. Um, lived all of my life up until that point in the Catholic Church. Faithful altar boy, part of the CYO, for those of you that were part of the church, the youth organization. I was on the worship team. Anything that they had to do with, I was a part of. And it's because my mom and my parents really stressed us being involved in church. If I'm what I'm ultimately so thankful for. One of, the, one of the ladies that spoke into my life as a youth pastor was integral in showing me Christ and the picture of what it was. But the Lord just began to do things in my heart. Many of you know my story. My, my, my dad and my mom are different faiths. My dad is Protestant. He attends here. So I've grown up my whole life in a home with this tension, with this 
struggle of Catholicism and Protestantism. And the Lord just began to work in my heart as a young man. Came to saving faith as a, as a young man. Knew the Lord, was walking in the Lord, and he began to show me things. I was immature, clearly probably had more zeal than wisdom in those years as all of us. But I remember at the time when I finally made a decision that I wasn't going to do that any longer and I was going to start attending, which was Living Word Church, in 1999. My dad was attending here. One of the last things I did was I went speak to our local priest. Um, I don't remember exactly how the meeting got set up, but I did. And he began to obviously speak to me and try to correct the error of my thinking. Once again, I'm 17, 18 years old, and I'm mostly probably speaking in practicalities. Uh, probably had, not, not probably, definitely did not have a depth of the understanding of, of Scripture and so forth. But the Lord was doing something. And I didn't get any answers of any substance, nothing that obviously would change my path. And there I was sent off into a trajectory of leaving the Catholic Church. It was a major deal. It was a major deal in my family. It was a major deal. I was the first one since my dad, 30 years previously. And as you can know, it it just caused a lot of strife, and it was some tough times. Now, the Lord has been faithful through all that and has really worked in some situations. But I stand here today to know that what we believe, as in the Bible, is the truth. It is the truth. Despite the pain, despite what it comes out of it, despite the things that it may cause and families and rifts, we stand on one thing, and it is the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture. And in it, we love well those that we encounter. That's key. We have to love well. Kristen Crystal Sanderson were the first people that brought me to my first CIA event with Vern and Tina at their house. It was a great time, and I've never looked back since. But as we continue on this morning, I wanted to share a little bit of that with you, but also I want to introduce the idea we're talking about faith alone. Sola fide was the Latin terminology. That's maybe, maybe be a more common word than you realize. For those of you here that are part of the Marine Corps, you know a saying called semper fidelis or simplify, which means always faithful, always faithful. You may have also heard words like bona fide, right? It's good faith. It's without deception, right? We get a French word that comes from that. We also know that if you go to Popeye's, they got bona fide chicken, Right? That's actually a trademarked, registered name for that bona fide chicken. So that word fide, that idea of faith, is quite common in our language. A lot of things that we talk, we use Latin words in our things, per se. Did you catch that? That was Latin. So, I asked you this question. Why is it so important that we study these truths of the Reformation? Why do we look at sola scriptura, Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Why, why are we looking at those things? And this is it. Because these truths that have come from the Bible separate the true biblical gospel from false gospels. This is the delineation. False gospels are powerless to save and are blasphemous to God. Blasphemous to God. These truths that we hold so tight are beautiful and provide such a place for us as believers. We really can rest in these things. We really can see the Lord in them. But the most important question, and a common thread not only through this message, but as we've been going through the entire series, is how is a person justified? 
before God. And God, it's with that, God, that we pray. And God, that we come before you. And God, that we lift up this time to you. God, that we lift up this message. God, may these words be only your words. God, may it penetrate our hearts. God, may it go to the depths of who we are. And God, a full reliance on you as our Lord and our Savior. God, thank you for this time. God, walk with us as we move through it. In your name we pray. Amen. So I've broken this message up into two sections. The first part that we're going to talk about, we're going to look at faith alone in context of the Reformation and Martin Luther. We'll kind of look at the history. We've kind of been doing that each week just to kind of see where that's coming from, get the context of it. But then the second part, I want us to look at faith alone and the connection for us today. Where we sit here today, Living Word Church, whatever the case may be, for those watching online, for those getting ready for the 4th of July and traveling this week, we're going to look at what it means for us today. And you might say the faith alone, you hear us each week saying alone, alone, and alone, and you may begin to think, how is it alone when there's five of them, right? Well, just to help you out a little bit with that, they are each alone in the context of what they are being discussed. So today when we talk about faith alone, being justified by faith alone, it's in the context that it's not in connection to works. It's faith alone. Last week it was grace alone alone, right? It's only by what God does. It's only the grace by which he gives us. So each week as we go through that, it's alone. Sola Scriptura. It's the Bible alone. It's not the other doctrines and the other Catholicism practices and traditions that go on. So that's the picture of alone. So in case you are wondering why there's five alones, they're not really that lonely, um, but they do stand alone. Chew on that for a while. But the beauty of all of this is it hasn't changed right? The Reformation and what they did in the 1500s wasn't like all of a sudden a new thing that took place. God actually set all this into place thousands of years earlier. Actually, let's go back to before the foundations of the earth, right? These truths have always been, but there was an upwelling that obviously took place. And interestingly enough, it still hasn't changed for us today. And even in that day, there was a true church that still was existing and was still in operation, but unfortunately, it was thwarted in such a major way. So let's look at it in Reformation and Martin Luther. Because as we learned last week, Luther really struggled with the idea of being righteous in the light of God. To quote him, he said, If anyone would feel the greatness of sin, he would not be able to go on living another moment. So great is the power of sin. Right? Pastor Ben said that he didn't have a very high view and then you have a very good view of grace in his life ultimately he didn't see it it was locked up in the sacraments by which he had to do he had to atone for remember the constant confession the the punishment of his body he was just over and over and over and over doing that so this was the weight that he was carrying along here as he was a monk as he was trying to achieve and maintain his salvation frequently gone over and over and over and over but when it came to the element of faith and salvation, Luther and the Catholic Church had a wrong understanding of justification by faith. Justification by faith. And because of that error, because of that false gospel, the true gospel had been veiled and prostituted. It was serious. Not only was it a false gospel that was powerless to save, it was ridden with sinfulness. Ridden. With sinfulness. And there was two things that really gave way and why they had such a misunderstanding during that time. 
One of them is, if any of you have studied history, there's a man by the name of Augustine. He's often called the father of Roman Catholicism. And he really had a huge emphasis on all of these areas as, he began to, as, as the Roman Catholic Church began to develop in the, early, in the third and fourth century. This is even way before the Reformation. And he was the one who was responsible for setting into place things like infant baptism and the living Eucharist and the perpetual virginity of Mary. That was his role. So that had influenced generation after generation after generation. And what he said was that you were made righteous in salvation. You were made righteous. And we're, we're going to talk in that a little bit more detail. And it was this process that you go through throughout your life. And there's this ebb and flow of falling in and out of the grace of God and working and atoning and going back and forth. So that was the, that was the culture. But one that I think is even more impactful is that the church had mistranslated when they went from the Greek manuscripts to Latin, the Latin Vulgate that was put out in the 4th century and 400 or so, they mistranslated the word for justification. Now you say, well, why that's such, what, what does that matter? What's the point of that? Why, does that? why is that a big deal? Well, first of all, what we should know and what we, what we need to know is that the Old Testament was written in Hebrews originally, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So that's why people would go back to that to reference what the original language was. And to my knowledge, none of us here, including myself, are Greek or Hebrew scholars. Therefore, if you asked us to do some of those translations, we probably would mess up as well without the guiding of the Holy Spirit and studying and looking through these things. So it was mistranslated, and this is what it was done. The Latin word for justification was translated to the Latin word justificare. Justificare, which is two separate words. The first part being justus, which means justice or righteousness, which, which was correct, but it was the second part of the word that caused the problem. And it's facare, facare. And facare, the verb at its most basic form, it's called an infinitive for you grammar people. It's got a preposition that comes in front of it, and it means to make. So it meant to make just. And remember, that was the same teachings that were coming from the church. And you say, okay, to make, right, whatever. But hang on there, just, just remember that it said to make. And to make is a problem for what we believe today as New Testament Christians that understand Scripture and understand what Christ did for us. So keep that in your mind. It had said to make rather than what we're going to see as to count or to declare, right? There's a big difference in that, and we're going to look at that in a little more detail. But it was understood in that time that the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. Make unpeople righteous. That's a problem, right? We're not righteous. Christ in us is righteous. So one day Luther's reading his Bible and he comes across Romans 1.17 and the Lord just illuminated in his heart this great truth. So up until this point, he's always seen it as, as make, right? He gets to Romans 1.17 and it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off in his mind. Now he's referencing that from Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament, which we also see two more times in Galatians and Hebrews. Galatians was another book that really Luther was just stirred up by with this idea of faith. So he's reading that, he's reading in Romans, and it just, a light bulb goes off. He saw something that he's never done before because he said, you know what, let me go see what the Greek 
manuscripts said. What is the Greek word for justification? And it's dakaiasune. Dakaiasune was the word for justification. But the definition all of a sudden jumped off the page when it said to count or to declare. Not to be made righteous. I'm not made righteous. To count or to declare. And this is what he says. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness which which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here I felt that was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Wow. An aha moment. That it's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. He called it a eustia alienin, which would have been an alien righteousness, something outside of himself. The other Latin would have been extra nos. It was something outside of him that took place. It wasn't him. All that he was trying to do in order to get himself made righteous was not the key in salvation. It was counted to us by the finished work of of the cross. It's extrinsic rather than intrinsic. We're not inherently righteous. We're actually inherently sinful. It's not declared. Excuse me, it is declared. We're not made. And then he begins to just see, wow, what's going on? And we see this picture of what we call imputed righteousness. Have you heard that word before? Imputed righteousness. A good way to look at it is, is if you wake up tomorrow morning and you turn on your TV and you find out that the royal family's prince, I can pick any royal family you want, it doesn't matter, marries a prostitute from the streets. And the world and the country is in awe. He can't do this. What are the implications of this? She's dirty, and she's got all kinds of debt, and she's got all kinds of baggage, and she doesn't represent the royal family, and all of these things, and so forth, and so on, and so on, because they know that if he marries her, or when he marries her, she becomes and gets everything that he had as the king, as the king to be. Everything with the, everything with the kingdom and all the rights are instantly hers, and she comes in filthy, and nasty, and dirty, and that's not right. That's not right. She didn't work for that. She didn't put in years and years and years of time learning how to curtsy and to put her silverware out and to do all the things that royal families do. But in an instant, she's the queen through the marriage of the prince. And then not only that, the prince has to take all of her filth and now he's got to be looked at by everybody with the snide remarks and all those things and all the garbage and all the baggage and everything that he took along with it. Remind you of something? Our Lord Jesus Christ did the very same thing for every one of us that have named him as our Lord and Savior. So are we righteous? No. It's Christ's righteousness in us. Remember back in Genesis 3.21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They needed him to clothe them with his righteousness. 
They hid. But listen to what just Luther said about justification even further. He said, because if this article of justification stands, the church stands. And if this article collapses, the church collapses. That's strong, right? From the beginning of our salvation to the end of our sanctification, church, it is faith. It is faith, and that's what he's trying to hammer home. So we're going to take a trip right here through God's Word, and we're going to unpack some of this beautiful faith that we see here before us, that Luther illuminated but has always existed. It's actually what I titled this message, A Beautiful Faith That It Is. And as we look at it, I want to look at two different elements. I want us to look at the act of faith for salvation. That's going to be the first two points. And then I want us to look at the continuity of faith in our sanctification. And that's going to be the third point. So as we go through this, look at how it's going to work. We're going to talk about pre-salvation and post-salvation. That's how we're going to look at faith and how it interacts with us as believers. Because faith is not just a one-time act, but a lifestyle for the true believer that I've been declared righteous. We would categorize faith in a lot of ways as man's responsibility, the element of our acceptance, our rejection of Christ in salvation. When we have faith in something, we believe it. We know it to be true, and because we know it's true, we trust it, and we're able to walk in it and go through it. And for us today, what I want us to do is look at the section of text that Pastor Ben talked about last week with with grace alone in Ephesians. So if you've got your Bibles, and I trust that you do, turn to Ephesians, whether that be electronically or mechanically, to our first point, that faith alone is what pleases God for our salvation. Faith alone is what pleases God for our salvation. Ephesians 2, in the first part there that we call A, is for by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. By grace, through faith, through being a channel by which it flows. That's what through means by definition. It's an act. It's a channel that something moves through. It's not our works. Our works before salvation actually do the opposite of saving us. You believe that? Do you believe, you're, do you believe they, they actually do the opposite? Look what it says in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Right? We, we, we instantly re- know that it is impossible for man to perfectly follow all of God's law. And God knew that. Because it was a picture of how holy he was, how perfect he was, and what it really meant in order to be righteous, to be called righteous. It wasn't going to happen from anything that we did. One of the areas that Luther struggled with with this idea of faith when he was wrestling with was Galatians. <clears throat> excuse me, so I want us to look at verse two, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul does some cool stuff here. He's going to declare three different times in this passage about salvation and that it's by faith. In the first part there, he says, yet we know that a person, right? So he gives this general picture. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's just saying, generally speaking, a person, it's not a definite article as we know it to be. It's just general in nature. And he goes time. And the second time, he makes it a little more personal. It says, so we, 
He's talking to the Galatian church. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So he reiterates it again, and he says, we. we have, this has happened to us as believers here in the Galatian church. And the third time, he takes a little different twist, and he makes a universal statement. And he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What does no one mean in the Greek? No one. It's a simple translation. You don't even have to dig very deep. Scripture is abundantly clear that faith is what justifies us before an almighty God. It's a fact. But staying in that train of thought, as we sit here today, why is it that faith is the way in which we're justified? Why is it faith? Why did God pick faith? What's the deal with faith? Well, here's the answer. From the depths of Scripture. Because God said so. That's why. But he does show us in Scripture, so I'll look at that now too. But the all-powerful, almighty God, the all-knowing God, said that it was faith. When we look at it in Hebrews eleven six, and it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So how do we please God? With faith, right? So it begs us the question, how does the Bible define faith? For that, we're going to look at some sections in Hebrews, a famous section many of you may have called before the Hall of Faith. Have you heard that before? The Hall of Faith in Hebrews is chapter 11, and there we see an amazing account of the men and the women that have gone before us from all the way back into the Old Testament that lived out a life of faith. Time after time, story after story. We just recently did a study with this through the last year in our men's group. And it was an amazing study of seeing the Lord's work through faith. Their lives were a testament to God. They're an encouragement for us in our walk. Now granted, we're not, they're not cheering us on in the stands like a fan would be. Or we're running some sort of race per se. It's their lives that were a testament to God or a testament to to us. They walked out these lives of faith. They did things and saw things and didn't see things primarily that the Lord promised to them, right? Abraham had all kinds of promises, but did he see them? No. He lived by faith. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? So it's the assurance. So that's the faith is the only thing that pleases God, and it's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That hope comes through our, his forgiveness of us. So when we, are, when we are counted as righteous before him, a righteousness now that we're clothed with, that we get to walk with in beauty as a believer, and this great cloud of witnesses was pointing to this faith, and that faith has always been what has pleased God. It's nothing new. This is not something that just started in the New Testament. Faith has always been what God said would please him. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed, and that's Abraham the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? It's always been God's plan. Faith is not just believing in God that he exists. It's believing that the God of Scripture is the only true God that exists. Think about the demons. They believe. Are they going to heaven? 
James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? It's not just belief. It's a, it's a belief that comes out of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. It would be said that demons are pretty orthodox in their view of God. They pretty well get it. They understand who God is. That reference there comes from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where it talks about that God is the one. There's no question about it. Many people that don't claim the Lord are not saved would say that they believe in God. Yeah, you could have people that say they don't, but the majority of people out there would say that they believe that a God exists, but is that what saves us? Of course not. We know that. Actually, to not believe in this way, Scripture tells us that that we call God a liar. Belief in itself is not salvation. Our belief must be in response. We see that in Romans 10, 9. We believe in our heart. We confess with our mouth. It must be in response to the free gift of faith in our life through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second point. That faith is a gift of God in salvation. Faith is a gift of God in salvation. Ephesians 2, finishing up verse 8 and 9. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. The very faith that we have to believe in God is a gift. That's beautiful. That's why it's such a beautiful faith. The word this right there is referring to salvation as a whole, that it comes by grace through faith. Remember Luther's moment, this idea of an alien righteousness, something that happened outside of him, something that was extra nos. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So I ask you, has the Lord settled that In your heart here today? Has he settled out the reality of his beautiful faith that he extends to us for those that call him Lord? The idea of faith is is such a big thing in our culture. So many times we hear it said in just so many crazy different ways. But often think about a chair, a chair that you trust, is a chair that you put your faith in. How many of you have some of those chairs at your house that when you sit on it, you still keep some of your weight on your feet? First of all, throw them chairs away. My wife loves those kinds of chairs. They're good for decoration, I hear. But they are terrible for putting your faith in, right? They collapse like a, like a cheap thing in a heartbeat, right? I've constantly been putting screws in those chairs and putting different pieces of wood and different things to make them stand up. When we have life group now, we use a lot of those decorative chairs. And many times people look at me first and say, Is it, can I sit in this one? Well, you can at your own risk, but I wouldn't put your whole faith in it, right? But the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not a shaky chair. He's not one that needs more screws, and he's not one that needs more attention. When we, when we come to faith in Christ, and when this stuff is settled out in our heart, we rest, and we even throw our arms back when we sit into it. We don't check ourselves going into it. We fall into the arms of the Almighty God. That's the faith that the Lord gives us. Not one that causes us to short-arm it or to be reclusive, one that we dive in headlong. So here I ask with a couple more questions for us to consider as we consider this faith. Does God seek me or you in salvation or do we seek God 
in salvation. Well, as we should always do, let's see what Scripture says about it. Because it's an essential part of our faith. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and this was the day after he had fed the 5,000. If you remember, he escaped over to Capernaum. He's there the next day, and he's talking through, and, he, and, and kind of catching midway of the story, he says in John six forty four, no one, and remember, what, what does no one mean in the Greek? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There are people in here today that the Lord has drawn you here. He's drawing, absolutely. He is working on your heart. It's not an accident that you showed up here. It's not just by chance or happenstance. The Lord, His Spirit, is drawing you unto salvation. Jesus was preaching some deep truths at that time, remember? He talked about the bread of life. He talked about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, and they were pretty, pretty stirred up by that. That was pretty crazy for them, especially for a Jew that really understood the weight of what that actually meant. Right? So they're all, in a, they're all in a tizzy about that. And Jesus knew that. He knew that they were struggling. His disciples were having a tough time with that. So he says, let me share some things with you because he's Jesus and he's omniscient and he knows all things. So picking up in verse 61, he says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was born? It is the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not, not, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So he tells them that, and then a little bit later he reiterates it again in verse 65, and he says, and he said, this is why I told you back in verse 44, that no, one else, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So it's clear. We see the work of the Holy Spirit drawing our hearts on the salvation. God is sovereign in salvation. And for us, that should be so beautiful. For us as a believer, there should be such rest in that. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. So by default, that brings us to our second question. Do I or you, do we seek God in salvation? Well, Romans three ten and 11 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's quoted from Psalms 14 and Psalms 53. And what I see here in this word seek in the original language is this word called exekteo. Exekteo. And what it means is to, with a fervor, to investigate, to crave, to demand. Actually, it was a Hebrew word that, that showed worship whenever it came to seeking. It wasn't this casual, flippant, lollipop walking around just trying to find a tennis shoe that you lost at your house. Not that kind of seek. It's not hide and seek, right? It's not a, it's not a child's game. It held the weight of that whenever you found it, there was something of substance. It was there. So then when we're talking about seek, that's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about looking around. Just think about it. Before Christ, Scripture tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses. We were spiritually dead. How does a spiritually dead person do those things? It's not possible, right? I was thinking about if any of you ever happened to not drown because you wouldn't be here, but 
Maybe you experienced or witnessed a drowning in a swimming pool. That person that was drowning and needed saving, did they go get somebody to save them? No, right? It doesn't work, right? You don't, you don't get somebody to save you when you need saving. Obviously, there has to be an outside influence that comes in. Luther called it a what? A justus alienus, something that was outside of himself that took place. Any seeking that we do before salvation is with selfish intentions, lest the Lord draws us. Self-fulfillment, self-pleasure, some pain or struggle that we're going through that we don't like. How many of you have seen people deal with really tough things in their life? They come to God only to, in the next week, live like the devil all again. And you're like, what's going on? Last week you were here. John 6, 26, and Jesus answered them, truly, truly. And anytime we see truly, truly, and know it, know it in that language, it had extra and added emphasis. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Why were they following Jesus? They needed something taken care of for themselves. They needed a quick fix. They needed something to just help them out of the quick bind that they were in. It was not a full surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? Comes to Jesus, begins to share all these things, starts to, he has his felt, what we would call a felt need for salvation. Jesus tells him to what? Obey his commands, sell everything, and follow him. And what, is, and what does he do? Turns away. Why? Because he was seeking selfishly. He wasn't seeking the purity of salvation because the Holy Spirit had yet at that point drawn on his heart. What about Adam and Eve after they sinned? What did they do? They went hide. Who found them? The Lord God sought them out, clothed them, took care of them. It's an important thought for us to think through that we seek God when we are his children. Right? We see that over and over in Scripture, that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek him with all of our heart as his child. Not when we're his enemy. Do enemies seek other than to kill or destroy? What do enemies do? That's what, that's what Scripture says we were before our salvation. We were enemies of the cross. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that faith is a nice little gift that we give to God in exchange for salvation. God. Here it is. And it's kind of silly to think about, right? It's kind of silly to think about that we would have anything to offer. Here you go, God. I hope you like it. Right? I think about when my kid brings me something, when they're little bitty and they bring you this little color sheet that they made, right? It's just like, it's the best that they got, but really, and, it, and we love it as parents, but let's just also be honest, it's a terrible color sheet, right? But we love it because they love it. Right? But it's, it, 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 it's pale in comparison to, just even as a parent, what we give to our children. It's pale in comparison. Actually, Scripture says the opposite is what we bring. Remember the story of the prince and the prostitute? What did she bring? Filth, garbage, debt, nastiness, unholiness, all of these sorts of things. So that's what we bring to the table of salvation. Our righteousness, it says in the Bible, and Isaiah is like filthy, polluted rags. Our righteous works. 
And I'm not going to break down the language for that for you. You can do that on your own. But go check that out, what that actually means to be a filthy, polluted rag. It ain't a dish rag. It's a weighty picture of what we have outside of Christ. We must remember this. If we do anything, even if we bring a thought to the table of salvation, that is a work, no matter what. And Scripture is abundantly clear. Our works do not save us. Our works actually condemn us. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Right? So if you get paid for it, if there's something you can do for it, it's your job. It's not what it is. It's a gift. Right? It's not anything you earned. And on top of that, it diminishes the finished work of the cross, church. It's like saying, God, thank you so much for what you did. Thank you for your death, your burial, and your resurrection. But there's one little piece I need to help you with. i got to give you a little bit of my faith so that you can complete salvation in my heart. Is that crazy? It diminishes the work of the cross. It's fully sufficient. It doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anything from us. And if he did, what kind of salvation would it be? Your notes include four more verses that speak to this. And I would encourage you this week to read them and to look at them and to consider them and to think through them. But this is so, so important. The beauty of this great gift of faith is that Satan cannot thwart it and our faith is secure and produces fruit in our lives as a believer. Because it's in Christ, not man. That's why it's powerful. That's why it has the power to save. That's why it has the power to work within us as believers. Because it's not us. It's a righteousness that was counted to us by the finished work of Calvary. Don't be so arrogant to think you bring anything to the table. It's powerless if you bring it. It's all powerful when the Lord does it. It cannot be stopped. The beauty of this amazing, beautiful gift of faith is point three. Salvation is by faith alone, but that faith will never be alone. Understand that? We've been saved. We've been born again. Our faith will never be alone. Our faith saved us, but it will never be alone from this point. Faith is not alone because now it must be accompanied with the good works in Christ Jesus. Now we got the order correct. Ephesians 2.10, this is so cool. For we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look what Paul does with the words walk right here. I'm going to bring back up verse 9 and 10. Look at the order by which he plays this out. First of all, not a result of works. Our salvation is not a result of works, right? So that's our works. Our works are not a result. We've gone over that over and over so that any may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Where's the work? The work is in us. God's work in us is the work. But if we get that order correct, look what it says. Christ, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, 
We now have the ability to walk in good works because of the great work that the Lord Jesus did in us. Amen. That word workmanship there is masterpiece in the original language. If you sit here today as a saint of the living God, you are a masterpiece of work. A masterpiece. As a true believer, we will do good works. We must do good works. Not because our good works maintain our salvation. Grace maintains our salvation. But because we can do no other because of Christ in us. The book of James gives us a beautiful picture of this idea of faith alone. And our faith is ultimately not alone. Actually, James was a pretty, it was a pretty tough epistle for Luther to work through, right? At first glance, it's kind of like, is it fighting against this idea of faith alone for justification? Many of you have read it. Many of you have felt the tension. Many of you have seen this. And interestingly enough, the phrase faith alone can only be found in James. It's the only place we see it in Scripture. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James, what are you doing? Like, Paul just laid out all kinds of stuff that is not about our works. It's not about that. What are you, what are you talking about? This is what Luther said. In a word, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's epistle are books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were to never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to these others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel in it. All right, so this is like, I don't like this section. I'm struggling with it. Now, we know that he's speaking here, and he's speaking specifically to a believer, and we know that true saving faith is accompanied by works. And that's what James was trying to tell us ultimately. It doesn't argue against salvation by faith alone, and it's not a contradiction. Firstly, that's not the context. It's not talking about the act of faith at salvation. It's talking about the continuity of faith for us as a believer in our sanctification. And secondly, The phrase faith alone doesn't have to be in the Bible for the truth to exist, right? So don't get too hung up on any of that. It actually argues against the salvation that it's alone. It's saying that it's going to be as a believer, that it's going to walk with you. James was saying if you're truly justified, good works of Christ will exist. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith and apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Anything we do good will, because of, will be because of Christ in us. Anything we do good. I mean, consider what Scripture says, that we will be given the fruit of the Spirit, right, in your life. And notice that that's not a plural fruit. You don't get to pick from the list, right? It's fruit in general. The whole basket of fruit is what we should be walking out as believers Look at this in Romans 3.27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Wow. Faith is what justifies us. So, what good works accompany your beautiful saving faith as you sit here today? James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's not meaning don't go out into the world. That's sinfulness it's speaking of. 
Keep yourself unstained in those ways. Good works should happen. James 2.26, one of our favorite verses. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There has to be something that changes in us. If you do not see fruit in your life and you consider yourself a believer, there's a problem. And the problem may very well be that you're not born again. And you say, well, that's tough, Pastor Matt. It is, but we want you to see that truth so that the Lord can illuminate your heart so that by which you might be saved. Evaluate your life. Evaluate what is happening. What is the fruit of that righteousness that's been given to you in your life? As we wrap this up, it's important for us to remember that this doctrine of faith alone, the doctrine in and of itself is not what saves us. What saves us ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. And next week we're going to talk about Christ alone as that. But that faith that Christ gives us is the way by which Salvation takes place. Faith alone. Faith is the way by which Christ saves his people. I want to plead with you on two fronts. Not from anything I've said, but for anything that the Lord God says. What his scripture says and we know to be true. That if you're a true believer here today, that you would fall in love with this beautiful faith This amazing gift of God that he gives us in salvation in our life. And that we would walk it out. When we leave this place here, that there would be a fruit that comes from our life. And when we walk into our workplace on Monday morning, there would be a difference. And if you've not in those areas and repent, get on your knees before the Lord God and say, God, help me. I'm going to stay here until you burn this knowledge into my mind. I want to seek your scripture as your child. I want to seek your face in all that I do. God, show me people the way you see them. Let me meet people in their situation exactly where they are. Let me plan my day so that I'm not always running around like a crazy person, given no opportunity to witness to those around me. And let it be a sorry excuse for not sharing the message of the gospel. Pray for God to do those things in your life so that your faith will be accompanied by the works that should be there because of the finished work of the cross. If you sit here today and you're not a believer, I don't even know why you're here. Who's the crazy man up there yelling at me? May I present to you Jesus, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the truth is, is that God is high and lifted up. He's sovereign and he's holy. He looks down on his creation and he's apart from us. Not apart. He's separate from us. And here we are before Christ, sinful in our humanity. The prophet says that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who could know what it's capable of? Just because you didn't act out everything doesn't mean your heart doesn't have the potential to do so. 
When we see that great truth and we see a great contrast between God and man, we're left with a very important question. What bridges the gap? How do I make that connection? And I introduce to you Jesus Christ. Walked the earth for 33 years. Suffered a horrendous death. Scripture says he was beyond recognition. Took on the wrath of God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in that moment that the weight of your sin and my sin took Jesus' life. Actually, he gave his life. But we're not done. Because there's something in each one of us here in order to be saved has to happen. And that finished work of the cross through the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ produces a belief in our heart that you have been saved. And it really is that simple. It is a simple, simple, simple gospel. Why do we need to overcomplicate it? Is it not complicated enough in our lives? The gospel is simple. And in that belief, we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And if you're here today and the Lord is doing that in your heart, myself, our pastors will be up here. We'll have people out in the foyer by the welcome desk that would love to meet with you, help you figure this thing out, to understand what the Lord is doing in your heart. What does this mean to accept the Lord Jesus Christ? And remember, you don't get it all right before you come to Christ. That was the whole deal with the Reformation. They were being told that they had to get it right before. We don't get it right first. We're dead. We need saving. That's the gospel. That's the purity of the gospel. That's a place where we find so much rest. That's the place where our faith goes deep in our core. It penetrates our heart. Because it's not us. It's Jesus Christ. God, you are so amazing. And your word is so good. And your faith is so beautiful. That it is so rich. God, may I never, may we never desire anything, Father, that's outside of you. God, we need a strength and a courage like never before. And God, tomorrow we're going to need a strength and a courage like never before. God, to walk out our lives of faith. God, that we would be a church. God, that penetrates into every area of this community. That our faith, God, would be evident in our walks. Not because of us, but because of an imputed righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves that clothes us. And because of that, we are able to become more like you. That our burden and our love and our desire for your word burns deeper and deeper. And God, that we would know it's true, as it says in Ephesians 5, that by the washing of the water of the word of God, we would be sanctified. That our faith, would sanctify us. God, go with us as we leave here. God, rise us up like never before. God, may we tremble at your word. May we tremble at the beauty of what you did for us on that cross. 
God, it's in your name that all things are possible. It's in your name that we pray in every, every way. God, it's in your name by which men and women will be saved. To the glory of God, amen. I love you. I love you. Have a great week. And we'll see you back next week.